one time or other, most all of us adults have had it. The DTR, the talk, the critical point in a relationship where you need clear answers about where this thing is going. In this episode, Jesus has the DTR with the citizens of Galilee. He'd been hanging out with them for almost two full years, preaching the kingdom, healing the sick, setting free of the captives, preaching the kingdom of God had come. Let me give you a little background to Jesus' DTR with the people in Galilee. John has just been murdered, and Jesus is in crisis. He wants to get away, but the multitudes stir his remaining levels of energy. They move him with compassion. So Jesus spends a whole day doing ministry to them. Late in the afternoon on this day, he says to his disciples, We need to feed these people. Philip asks him, So just how are we going to do that? There are 5,000 men here, plus women and children. Andrew apparently pokes around and finds a little kid with a lunch pail, with five loaves and two fish. He tells Jesus, that's what they have for starters. Jesus has the people sit down, blesses that little kid's lunch, and before it's over, all 5,000 men, with their wives and kids, are fed. And just to make sure we know, they didn't all just get a tiny little nibble. The Gospel writers record that each disciple went out and collected leftovers, 12 baskets in all, and filled them up. The reaction of the people was quite extraordinary. This is the prophet. They likely meant the prophet that was coming before the coming promised king. That would have been John, Jesus' cousin. John said Jesus was the coming king. Jesus slipped out of sight with his disciples. He then sends his disciples in the evening across the lake in a boat, and Jesus sneaks off to some private place to pray and to regroup. We're told in the fourth watch of the night, that's 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., the winds on Galilee were contrary to the disciples. They were making no progress in the middle of the lake, and this thing isn't all that big. At its longest point, it's only about 14 miles across. This time it doesn't sound like a nasty thunderstorm, just a nasty wind. We're told by the Gospel writers that Jesus began to walk across the sea on the surface of the water. On the surface, this seems like a strange miracle of Jesus. But when you consider what God did in the Old Testament, dividing the Red Sea, he also dammed the Jordan River upstream so the people of Israel could cross. And there's an incident in the life of Elisha where the power of God makes an axe head float to the surface. This isn't an unprecedented thing for God to do. We're not told Jesus' motive other than perhaps to help his disciples or to get across to the other side of the lake where they were heading. As he gets near the boat, they catch a glimpse of him walking on the water. They begin to cry out loud. I mean, what would you think, in the middle of the night, in a storm, seeing someone traipsing on the water in the shadows? Don't be afraid, it's me. It's here, Peter from the boat says, If that's really you, Lord, tell me to come out to you on the water. Jesus says, Come on out, Pete. The way Matthew reports it, Peter actually made it a ways. But then he looked down at the waves, and he panicked, and stepped into a manhole. Whether it was on his way down, or coming up for a breath of air, he prays the shortest prayer in the Bible, Lord, save me. Maybe that prayer was the reason Jesus came out there on the water to begin with. Jesus grabs Peter's hand and pulls him up. I picture him looking Peter in the eye in the darkness going, Pete, where is your faith? Apparently they walk back to the boat together. I love that. And in the boat, Jesus asks his father to shut the fans off. The wind vanished. 
There in the boat, they worshipped him. Mark adds they were immediately at their destination, the shores of Capernaum. That apparently was a miracle too. They'd been up all night, and they don't get much sleep either, because when dawn comes, the crowd on the other side of the Sea of Galilee began looking for Jesus and the disciples again. They likely saw the disciples leaving a boat without Jesus, so they're looking all around for him. And when they can't find him, they figure, somehow, Jesus must have gone where his disciples had gone, toward Capernaum. They pack every boat they can get their hands on. They probably got to Capernaum around noon, maybe a little earlier, and they found Jesus, and their first question to him was, How did you get here? Jesus replies, You want food again, don't you? This reminds me of what seagulls do at the beach when you pull out the sandwiches. Can you picture that? Jesus knows they've come across the lake and assembled on the shoreline around him because they want to be fed again. Jesus says, If only you would be hungry for the kingdom as much as for food. Jesus had been hanging around these people for two years, and it had been casual. Now they wanted to make him king, and they wanted him to provide for their needs. This brings Jesus to the DTR moment. It's a critical point where they need to understand where this relationship needs to go. He decides to provide some clarity on this relationship. The day before, he'd provided food for his crowd out of his compassion for their need. Now he decides to turn this miracle of feeding the 5,000 into a signpost to point to something much more significant. The Gospel writer John lets us eavesdrop on his conversation on the shoreline of Galilee at Capernaum. The people, trying to talk him into a meal, say, Jesus, what work should we do to honor God and to do his works? In other words, tell us about the chores that please God. That sounds like the Pharisees had had an influence, doesn't it? Jesus replies, believe in the one whom God has sent. There's John's believe word coming up again. The crowd responds, what sign will you do that we might believe in you? I can almost hear the sound of seagulls. They don't wait for an answer. They have a shameless suggestion. They said, God fed our forefathers manna in the wilderness. Hint, hint. That was a sign that God gave. Give that sign to us, too. Jesus replied, God gave that generation bread, you're right. And God has given you better bread. Bread that gives life. The crowd gets excited. Jesus, give us this bread. I imagine a pause. Jesus looks into the crowd and says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger or thirst again, but my Father will give to everyone who beholds me and believes in me eternal life. Now stop a minute and think. Beholds and believes gets life. Does that ring a bell? That sounds like what Jesus told Nicodemus in episode 92. Nicodemus wanted to know how he could be a part of God's kingdom. And Jesus didn't talk about chores. He talked about that snake on a pole in Numbers, that anyone who'd been bitten could look at that snake that Moses was to put on a pole and believe what God had said about it. And if they turned and looked at the snake, they would live. Now Jesus says, whoever beholds and believes in me will have eternal life. Now the gospel writers don't tell us if this entire conversation happened on the beach or on a procession to the synagogue. Because Jesus continues this to find the relationship conversation from the synagogue in Capernaum. Perhaps as they're traveling, people are grousing. How can he say he's bread that came down out of heaven? We know his kinfolks. 
Jesus is listening into these discussions. That sounds like Nazareth, doesn't it? Once at the synagogue, Jesus doubles down on the DTR talk. He repeats, I am the bread of life. I'm better than manna. Your forefathers ate manna and they all died. But you eat this bread and you won't die. You'll live forever. My flesh is true bread and I'm going to offer it up that all might live. Did you catch that? And then Jesus triples down on the DTR, the talk. He says this, Those who eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood will be raised up to life on the last day. He answers their question, What works must we do to do the work of God and have eternal life? You need to eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood to be right with God and raised up on the last day. Many in the crowd took Jesus' words literally, and many people after Jesus' death and resurrection took them literally as well. Many of their enemies, both Romans and Jews, accused them of cannibalism, of eating their own children in their love feasts. Later in history, seeking to honor Jesus' words to eat his flesh and drink his blood, the Roman Catholic Church declared the doctrine of transubstantiation, that when a priest, under the authority of God, blessed the wine and the bread, it changes substance into the literal body and blood of Christ. That's why the priest finishes every last drop of the wine. You don't pour the blood of Christ down a sink. But Jesus gives a clue in this passage that would suggest he's giving a metaphor here. Jesus says, The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. You could just as easily interpret that eating my flesh and drinking my blood is equal to abiding in me. On the night before Jesus died, he makes another strong statement about branches abiding in a vine. Many theologians agree Jesus is speaking with a metaphor. This is a define the relationship moment. What Jesus is saying is that God wants an intimate union between Jesus and those who are listening, not some casual thing. Being a child of God is not having dinner together and chatting with Jesus. It's going all in in the relationship, almost as if you are eating and drinking him. It's being sustained on a relationship with Jesus, like water and bread sustain the people of Israel in the wilderness. Both here in Capernaum and later on in Jesus' ministry, Jesus will say at some point in time, you have to go all in or decide to walk away. I grew up on The Andy Griffith Show. You can still find it on MeTV and other places. Like most viewers, my favorite character was Bernard Fife, Barney. He appeared on the show for five years from 1961 to 1965. Barney had a running girlfriend, Thelma Lou, and a few side interests he bragged about, like Juanita, the waitress. But Thelma Lou was his main girl. Through the five seasons, that relationship just didn't go anywhere. On several occasions, Thelma Lou tried to have the DTR, but Barney just wouldn't make a commitment. Jesus won't be Thelma Lou here. The Gospel writers tell us what happened. Most of the people walked away from Jesus. They wanted a king to push out the Romans and to meet their needs. And for such a king, they were ready to do his chores. But Jesus wouldn't have that. All along, he'd been preaching it's not about chores believing in and beholding the one who gives up his flesh and blood that they might have life, eternal life. We're told even some of Jesus' disciples began to flake off. 
not the 12, but certainly some of those 70 in the next ring. As these people are bailing out of the synagogue, Jesus turns to the 12 disciples and said, How about you guys? You want to walk away too? Peter replies, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You want to know where this relationship is going? We're in, Jesus. Jesus simply replies, Not all of you are in. One of you is a devil. In many ways, this DTR moment, the talk, is a pivotal point in the ministry of Jesus. He'd been rejected in Jerusalem by the leaders. Then he was rejected in his hometown. Now he's being rejected by a majority of the people in Galilee, where he spent the bulk of his first two years of ministry. Here in Capernaum, some of his closest followers take a walk. But Jesus is not a quitter. God wants his lost kids back. And before Jesus leaves this region to head to Jerusalem to give his flesh and blood, he wants to offer that relationship to as many as he can in the area of Galilee of the Gentiles and beyond. We're going to see whether or not he was successful in that mission as he begins the third year of his ministry in our next word picture.